Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans. And I want to finish today looking at the verses that we looked at last week and kind of just um, gave you an overview of what the verses mean. And uh, this morning we get to flesh them out, um, put some feet on them, if you will. And uh, hopefully this morning's message will be very practical uh, in light of what we learned last week. And I'm referring to Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, which is the clearest passage in Paul's letters, I guess, equal to Colossians chapter 3, where he explains the doctrine of mortification. Now, ladies, I just feel like I need to apologize ahead of time. <laughs> I don't have a, a warm, fuzzy Mother's Day message for you all. And I was really trying to rack my brain this week going, okay, what's the connection? There's got to be a connection between Mother's Day and mortification. <laughs> and uh, I know Kyle and I agreed that no, no one in our lives has helped us mortify sin than our moms. <laughs> and uh, if there is any resource for change that all of us have had growing up, if you had a, a Christian mom, a godly mom, right? Uh, she was a tool in God's hand to help you mortify sin and put sin to death. And um, I know my mom was that. And so um, anyway, Kyle and I got a chuckle out of that this week that, yeah, that's the connection right there. Moms are the tool of mortification. It's the Holy Spirit and mom, right, that help you deal with sin in your life. Well, let's reread Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Father, we thank you for this simple but challenging instruction. Simple to understand, very difficult to do. But I pray we wouldn't overcomplicate it this morning, that you would help us to understand that mortification is simply the Spirit taking the commands of your word and applying them to our lives. And, and, and what that looks like on our end is just obeying the basic principles of your word. And so would you help us today? Lord, as we all have hard-to-kill habits in our lives, that you would grant us grace to apply these means of grace to kill them for your glory and for the good of those in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of you, I'm sure, have heard of the seven deadly sins. Those of you who are from a Catholic background are probably more familiar with the seven deadly sins than the rest of us, uh, because the Catholic Church was the one who came up with the seven deadly sins. And if you are familiar with the Catholic Church, they divide sin into two categories. There's what they call venial sins or minor sins, which can be forgiven uh, by keeping the sacraments. And then there are moral sins or major sins which result in eternal damnation. And in medieval times, Catholic theologians categorized these moral sins, also called uh, capital sins or cardinal sins, uh, into the seven deadly sins, which are pride, envy, lust, gluttony, anger, greed, and sloth or laziness. Now, that original list was later revised in the 6th century by Pope Gregory I, who also added the seven virtues that correspond with those seven or to, to those seven deadly sins, uh, specifically humility, kindness, chastity, temperance, patience, liberality, and diligence. Now, you say, why are you talking about the seven deadly sins? There, there's no list of seven deadly sins in the Bible. Well, you're right. You can't find an actual list of these specific seven sins and their corresponding virtues, 
anywhere in the scriptures, but these sins, these virtues are referenced throughout the Bible. And so, well, there's not a, 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 a biblical list per se, or that's not necessarily a biblical list. It lines up with some of the lists of sins and virtues in both the Old and New Testament. For example, Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, a familiar um, passage, I, I'm assuming, to most of you. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. I don't know if that's where the seven deadly sins came from or originated from, but it says there are seven things that God hates. Seven sins, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. And so that is God's list of the seven deadly sins, if you will. But then also in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, here is just one of a number of lists that Paul gives of sins followed by virtues. In Galatians chapter 5, 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, there is that whole concept of of okay, if I commit one of those sins, I'm going to end up in hell? No, if you practice those sins, you'll end up in hell. In other words, that is your lifestyle, that you are, uh, this is the characteristic pattern of your life. In other words, you're not saved, um, because if you were, you wouldn't be living in this pattern of sin, because the Spirit of God in you wouldn't allow you to continue to live in that pattern of sin. But, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So here we have some divinely inspired lists in the pages of Scripture, which I think, uh, along with that man-made list uh, of seven vices and virtues, again, intended to help Christians identify sin in our lives and to mortify it by replacing it with the contrasting godly trait. And if nothing else, these lists are here to simply remind us of the deadly nature of sin. And I say that because in our day, sin is portrayed as anything but deadly. Sin is presented as something fun, even funny I mean, just look at the TV shows, um, the sitcoms, and, and even the radio hosts, you know, on morning radio and talk show radio. It's just they, they're always making fun, joking about sin. And the world's attitude towards sin reminds me of something Thomas Brooks wrote in, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. This is an old Puritan pastor. And he compared the bewitching nature of sin to an ancient herb given to people who had a deadly disease that would make them lie laughing while they were dying. The concept of sin itself, let alone its deadliness, has virtually vanished from today's culture. Sin is rationalized. It's redefined so it doesn't seem or sound so bad. Rarely do you hear the word adultery in the, used by the world. It's, oh, they had an uh, affair. Uh, or stealing is fraud. Again, softening words. Sinful decisions are talked about in terms of mistakes or poor choices. Sinful lifestyles are labeled as diseases or syndromes or disorders. And sin is not only disappearing in our culture, it's, it's being softened in our churches just to make people feel more comfortable. You may have heard this, but the, the, the pastor of the largest church in America purposely does not mention sin in either his sermons or his books because in his opinion, it isn't helpful and he just wants to encourage people. And so you'll never hear the word sin come out of his mouth, which is a far cry from the pastors of old who wrote books like The Mischief of Sin or the sinfulness of sin, or the exceeding sinfulness of sin, or the mortification of sin. 
Again, all Puritan pastors here, Puritan titles, and in the spirit of the Puritans, we want to take a serious look at the deadly nature of sin, and specifically the sins that beset us all, and, and then work towards putting these sins to death in our life. And that's what Paul was explaining here in Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. He was explaining our duty or responsibility or obligation, is the word he used here, um, in regards to indwelling sin. Namely, to kill it with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the phrase he uses there in verse 13, putting to death, literally means to kill or destroy. It's where we get the word mortify or mortification. If you have a, 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 an old King James Version or even the new King James Version, I think they still use the term mortify. Um, and again, a simple definition of mortification is killing sin in your life. That's all we're talking about here. And we mentioned this last week that the command, it's a command, put to death the deeds of the body. It's a present tense command, which means this is a continual, ongoing, daily, moment-by-moment battle that will never be complete during our lifetime. And yet we are to ruthlessly and radically seek to exterminate, eradicate everything and anything in our lives that keeps us from being holy. And I mentioned last week that this is a life and death struggle. Paul says, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a life and death struggle. So we need to see sin as our sworn enemy that will do whatever it takes to kill us. And we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to kill it before it kills us. The question is, how do we actually go about killing sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? How does the process of mortification work when it comes to those hard-to-kill habits in our life? Somebody said it this way, very simply. Quote, the means the Spirit uses to accomplish this process, the mortification process, is our faithful obedience to the simple commands of Scripture. So again, there's no secret here. There's no special formula. There's no mystical experience that you should be seeking you should simply focus on faithfully obeying the simple commands of Scripture. And so what I want to do this morning is to give you a, a list of some of the simple commands of Scripture. This is not an all-inclusive list. By any means, as we go through these lists, this list, you'll think, well, why didn't he mention that? Or he could have also said that, and you're exactly right, because we don't have all day, right? You need to go take mom to brunch, so we can't spend all day here talking about the myriad of principles that apply to this concept of mortifying sin. But I want to just cover what I think are some of the most basic biblical principles for mortifying sin. These are, these are some of the most critical things to remember and put into practice whenever your old master shows up, your old landlord shows up, right, the flesh, and demands that you do this, say this, eat this, drink this, smoke this, touch this, watch this buy this, attend this, how are you to counteract the flesh and Satan? Well, here's a list of 12 ways to mortify sin in your life. I already gave you the first one last week as your homework assignment. Number one was to identify specific sins you need to kill. That's where it starts, is being self-aware. Um, we all have blind spots, obviously, in our lives, things that we don't necessarily see that are sin. Uh, sometimes we need the help of other people to point those out. And again, moms are great for that, right? If you're a kid, they'll point out your sin. Wives as well. Uh, sometimes your children point out your sin, right? They confront you. They expose your sinfulness. But the point is, uh, most of us, I think, um, know the sins that we battle with the most, what are our top three to five sins? I encourage you to consider that this week, um, that you would know the affliction of your own heart, as, as, we, as it says in First Kings chapter 8, that you would go before the Lord, Psalm 139, and ask him to uh, search your heart, uh, that you would consider your ways, and that you would come up with um, a list of some of your toughest temptations, your biggest sins, your 
uh, most hard to kill habit patterns, the things that you can kind of just find yourself falling into uh, almost um, automatically, um, whether that be anger, pride, fear, sexual immorality, jealousy, gluttony, any life-dominating sins, which the world has called addictions, whether that be drugs, alcohol, nicotine, caffeine, sugar, pornography, you know, just the list right, goes on. You fill in the blank there. So what I want you to do, hopefully you were here last week and you've been thinking about that this week and you've come in your mind, at least maybe not on paper, but in your mind, you have a mental list. I want you to pick out one of those sins, okay? Just, just pick out the, maybe your worst sin habit, okay? Just, just kind of get it there in the, in the forefront of your mind um, and, and let's go to work on it this morning and let's apply some biblical principles and, and let's see how helpful uh, these biblical principles might be, these steps that you could take to overcome, to defeat, to conquer um, that sinful habit pattern in your life. So what are they? Number two, we're going to say this, uh, live under the Holy Spirit's control. Live under the Holy Spirit's control. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read some verses. They're all listed there in your notes and, uh, and then make some comments on them. Again, just to let you know, every one of these points could be a sermon in and of itself. Okay, so we're just going to kind of be skimming through these kind of quickly, kind of giving you a 12-step program, if you will, right, to help you overcome the sins in your life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we were just there uh, reading that list of sins in verse 19, but the context is this, Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Well, that sounds easy enough. Pretty simple. I just need to walk by the Spirit, and I won't carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets a desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. That sounds more like it. <laughs> That's more my life right there, is I got this war going on, and again, we saw Paul's admission of the war within in Romans chapter 7. But to walk by the Spirit, what does that mean? Because if that's the key there, to walk by the Spirit, I'm not going to carry out the desire of us. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? It simply means that you live your life directed by or submitted to or yielded to or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And the next letter that Paul wrote, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, a verse that we're all familiar with, he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a great analogy. He, for some reason, compared what it's like to be drunk with being filled with the Holy Spirit. When a person is drunk, essentially they are under the control or under the influence of a foreign substance, of alcohol. And in the same way, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are under the control, you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So you say, well, how do I get drunk <laughs> with the Holy Spirit? Now, again, you can listen to some preachers on TV and getting drunk with the Holy Spirit looks really crazy and goofy. Um, and, and all this charismatic craziness. And that's not what it means to get drunk with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled, to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. Um, if it's the key to not giving into the flesh and fulfilling the desires of the flesh, well, how do we do that? Well, I think the way to get filled with the Holy Spirit is, first of all, to confess your sin, to, to confess how you may have quench the Holy Spirit or grieve the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things we can do to the Holy Spirit who's with us. We can quench him, we can grieve him. Quenching him is, is not doing the things that we, we know he wants us to do and grieving him is doing the things that we know he doesn't want us to do. So you first of all confess your sin. Sin is uh, the thing that gets in the way, right? Uh, keeps you from being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. You need to confess your sin, how you've been quenching him, how, how, quenching the Holy Spirit, how you've been uh, grieving him. And then you need to also yield every area of your life to him. Um, and again, we've learned this in Romans chapter six, that we are to not yield the members of our body to sin, to unrighteousness. So literally you yield, you submit you surrender your eyes to the Holy Spirit. You surrender your ears, your mind, your hands, your feet, 
the members of your body to the Holy Spirit. So you, 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 you surrender them. And again, that's something you can do through prayer. Uh, you need to continuously depend on the Holy Spirit. You also need to study and apply God's word. Interesting, you're there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Look at this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, look over at Colossians chapter 3. Interesting here, the similarities between these two passages. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 here, he's not talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about being filled with the Word of God. He says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. But notice, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So do you see the, the fruit of being filled with the Spirit and the fruit of letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within you is exactly the same. So what can we conclude from that? That being filled with the Spirit is the same thing as being filled with the Word of God. And being filled with the Word of God is the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. And so if you want to be, say, what does that mean? Is that, do I kind of wait for this feeling, this experience for the Holy Spirit to fill me? No, you get into God's Word and you let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And we know that the Word of God is the sword of who? The Spirit. And so again, to take this being filled with the Holy Spirit out of the ethereal and into the practical, uh, I think there's a connection there purposely made between Ephesians uh, 5 and Colossians 3 that uh, studying and applying and meditating on God's word uh, is, is critical um, to being filled with the Spirit. And the point is when you live under the, the word's control, the control of the word, you're essentially living under the Spirit's control and he enables you to control then the desires, the impulses of your flesh. We mentioned 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 last week, um, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess or control his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then he says in verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The whole point is God gave us the Holy Spirit to help us be what? Holy. And so we need to live under the Holy Spirit's control. Again, um, when we taught through Ephesians years ago, I think I took two weeks to talk about what does it mean to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? So a lot of truth there that I want to encourage you to study on your own and unpack. This whole connection between being filled with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Word of God or letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you leads us to number three, and that is to fight sin with God's Word. You need to fight sin with God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 9 how can a young man keep his way pure? What's the answer? By keeping it according to your word. And then two verses later, your word I have treasured in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. There's no greater example anywhere in God's word of how to fight sin with God's word than Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was the perfect example. Each time he was tempted by Satan out there in the wilderness for 40 days, he quoted what? Scripture. And not just any scripture, but the scripture that he was most likely meditating on while he was in the desert, while he was in the wilderness. He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. Interesting. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. 
He humbled you and let you be hungry. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Remember that when he said, hey, turn this, hey, if you're truly the son of God, turn this rock into a loaf of bread. And this is what he quoted. Why do you think he quoted that? Because he was probably meditating on the Old Testament and specifically, not just random verses, but verses that specifically applied to his situation, that he was in the wilderness. So he's meditating on verses about when Israel was in the wilderness and God was teaching them the things that he wanted them to learn. And so this was very appropriate. This was on his mind. This was on his heart. And so again, the lesson here is that we need to pack our mind full of scripture and learn how to use it strategically to defend against temptation and attack sin like a skillful swordsman. And those of you that were here at our, our first ManCon uh, a month ago will remember, you'll never forget, um, our speaker, Phil Mosier, pulling out those swords, right, and having that sword fight with Michael C. Hughes while he was quoting scripture. And it was just a powerful illustration of the importance of having something to go for when you're being tempted and you go for a sword and you got nothing because you haven't memorized any scripture. You don't have any verses to, to, to fight off this attack. Of Satan. And again, we said that the, the word of God is the spirit sword. The sword, the word is the sword of the spirit. And so we need to study and memorize and meditate on verses that deal with specific sins that we struggle with. So that hard to kill habit that you're thinking about, that you're applying all these, you're going to try to apply all these things to, hey, you got a concordance in the back of your Bible? Look, say it's pride. Look up pride and, and look up some verses on pride. Or if you don't know how to use your concordance, you know how to use Google search, right? Go on Google and look up verses on anxiety um, and, and, and see some verses that, that specifically deal with those sin issues and then begin to meditate on those verses, think about those verses, unpack those verses, memorize those verses, and, and really attack and confront the lies that the devil tells you when he's tempting you to sin with the truth that God has told you in his word. That's really what it comes down to. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Satan's lies? Or are you going to believe God's truth? That's what, that was the Garden of Eden. When, when um, Eve saw the fruit that was good to eat, uh, what, did, what, did, what did Satan say? Did God really say this, that you would surely die? No, he told you not to eat that because he knew when you ate that, that you would be like him. Well, she had a choice to make. Am I going to believe that Satan says, if I eat this, I'm going to be like God. And God said, if I eat this, I'm going to die. Simple choice. Who are you going to believe? And Satan has some really good lies that he tries to feed us, right? But God also has some far better promises that we need to know so that we can use them to confront the lies of Satan. So make sure you fight sin with God's word. Thirdly, depend on the Lord through prayer. Depend on the Lord through prayer. And again, you're already maybe feeling like your heart's sinking, like, oh man, I thought he was going to tell me something new I hadn't heard before, some secret, that this was going to be it. I was going to finally get the fix I've been looking for, for this hard to kill habit. No, these are just basic biblical principles, right, that uh, is the pathway to sanctification, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Again, this is coming on the heels of Paul's instruction on the armor of God. So he's talking about the battle that we face against Satan and sin and uh, the, our struggle against the flesh. And, and, uh, and, and so what, what, what is the application here? He says, okay, you've you got to put on the armor but you also got to pray. Jesus said in Matthew 6.13, in the Lord's Prayer there, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Matthew 26.41, you may remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples, and he asked them to wait for him and, and pray with him, 
Um, Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Hebrews chapter four, this is very encouraging, comforting. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we have a great high priest who's interceding for us in heaven, and he's a high priest, verse 15, who cannot sympathize, or we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with fear and trepidation. No, let us draw near with what? Confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's what you need when you're being tempted. We need God's mercy. We need God's grace. And so we see this connection throughout Scripture between praying and overcoming sin and temptation. And in light of Christ's temptation, we're invited to go to him for help when we're tempted so he can intercede for us on our behalf. And so we need to go before the throne of grace confidently and frequently and pray things like, God, thank you for freeing me from sin's power. Thank you that you're my new master and I am under no obligation to my old master. God, I confess my sin and ask you to forgive me. Help me to never do that again. Cause me to hate sin as much as you hate sin. These are some of the prayers, right? Depending on the Lord through prayer before temptation and even after the temptation, if we've given into the temptation, we need to pray. And so depend on the Lord through prayer. Number five, hate and fear sin. Hate and fear sin. You want to mortify sin, you need to hate it and you need to fear it. You're all familiar with the story of Joseph and, and, and Potiphar's wife, the original desperate housewife that was uh, pursuing Joseph, uh, wanted him to sleep with her. And what did he say? How could I do this great, what? Evil in the sight of God. He, he saw sin for what it was. Um, Acts chapter 5 Verse 11, if you remember there, um, Ananias and Sapphira had um, participated in some offering that was being taken, and they had sold some property and brought what they said was all of the proceeds, when they really had kept back some from, for themselves, and so they had lied, and what happened? Well, they dropped dead in church, and the deacons had to run in and haul them out. Well, what does it say? Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things, right? Like, hey, if you lie, you die. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm scared to lie because I see what happens. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. Here Paul is talking about um, how to uh, honor elders, but also how to Confront an elder. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Verse 20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And if you've been here on any, any occasion, thankfully they've been few and far between when we've had to actually publicly announce someone's sin in a, in a, in a, in a church discipline a fashion during a communion service, there's a holy hush that comes over the congregation, doesn't it? And, and it just reminds us of the, the deadly nature of sin and, and how deceitful uh, and deceptive sin can be. And so we, may, we need to see sin for what it really is, that it's, that it's evil rebellion against God that grieves his heart, that despises his authority, that substitutes or replaces him with someone or something else in an attempt to find peace and satisfaction. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, God said through the prophet that my people have committed two evils. 
And these two evils are appalling. He said they, first of all, forsook me, the fountain of living water, and they went and dug out other wells and broken cisterns, right, trying to find something else to satisfy them. In other words, idolatry. And so when you think about how you dishonor the Lord, when we dishonor the Lord, we're basically saying, you know, you're not satisfying enough. I'm going to go try to find satisfaction or refuge in, 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 in some, some, something or someone else. That's essentially what we're doing when we sin. John Piper said it this way in his book, Future Grace, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. That, that's a great quote, right? Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And so we need to hate that, that, that I honestly am, am saying to God, you're not satisfying enough. You're not a good enough refuge for me. I don't get enough pleasure and joy and happiness from my relationship with you. I've got to go somewhere else to get it. We should hate that, that we would do that to our great God and King. We should also fear sins, deceptiveness, as well as its devastating consequences. But I think we also just need to be remember, re- reminded here that we should hate sin not just because of the consequences, which is typically what we hate about sin, is its consequences. Oh, now I've got to deal with this, or now I've got to do this, or experience this. No, we, we should hate sin simply because of what it is. Thomas Brooks, um, who wrote that book, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices said this, if there was no God to punish him, no devil to torment him, no hell to burn him, no man to see him, yet he would not sin for the ugliness and filthiness of sin. Wow. Number six, don't feed the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. Last week we looked at Matthew 5, 29 and 30 where Jesus said if you're I cause you to sin, what do you do? You gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, right? He wasn't talking about literally maiming yourself, but that we should take radical steps to cut off anything in our life that might lead to sin. Romans 13, 14, just a couple pages ahead in our study here, Romans 13, 14, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Our sinful flesh is always looking for opportunities to gratify itself. And so we can't provide it with opportunities to feed itself. And we've all heard the illustration of that little pet sin, right? That we, we kind of keep hidden away in our closet. And, and we'll take it out from time to time and we'll, we'll pet it a little bit and we'll, we'll feed it a little bit and we'll put it back in the closet and, and, and we'll forget about it for a few days and then we'll go back and we'll get it out and we'll, we'll stroke it a little bit and we'll feed it a little bit and, and we do that long enough and one day we open up that closet and that thing pounces out because it's grown, right? That little kitty cat became a full-grown lion because we kept feeding it. And so... The point is we need to remove anything in our life that has the potential to tempt us to sin. We should make it hard for us to sin. So you might have to throw away stuff, pour out stuff, smash stuff, burn stuff, cancel stuff, delete stuff, block stuff, end a relationship, drive a different way to work and back. Maybe even change jobs. I mean, again, it, it, it might have to get that radical. If you know that these things are providing you an opportunity to be tempted on a regular basis. So don't feed the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. Number seven, unearth and uproot the real issue. Unearth and uproot the real issue. Interesting concept introduced in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3 The prophet Ezekiel says, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. So this is God speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, these men have set up their idols, interesting, not on the hills. We know that Israel was guilty of setting up idols on the hills that they were worshiping. But he says, no, these men have set up their idols in their, where? 
in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. So, in other words, the idols on the hills were really just a symptom. They weren't the cause. The cause of those idols was the idols, those external idols was the idols in their heart. Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 7 about how all sin uh, germinates and, and comes out of the heart. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And then James, in James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? In other words, this, all this arguing and all this fighting, that, that's a symptom of idolatrous desires in your heart. And uh, John defines these idols, if you will, these desires in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 and 16, do not love the world nor the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So he took, takes all of the sinful idols that are available, if you will, in the world and, 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 and boils them down, categorizes and puts them into three categories. There's lust of the flesh. In other words, that's the stuff that, that, that makes us feel good. Um, there's that desire to feel good, uh, the lust of the eyes, the things we see that we want, the coveting and the greed, and then there's the pride of life. Of course, all the pride and, and, and selfishness that comes from wanting to be you know, somebody or, or, or whatnot. What, what's the point here? We need to discern what idols we are worshiping or desiring or seeking pleasure or refuge in other than Christ. We all do it. I mean, the simple act of coming home from work depressed or getting off the phone call, a phone and having a discouraging conversation and immediately you go over to the pantry and you start looking for something to eat. Why? Well, you're looking for some you want to feel good. That, that made you, you feel bad when you came home. That conversation made you feel bad. You want to feel good. And so I'm going to eat something that will make me feel good. Or, or you're looking for some refuge, right, in other than Christ. So the scripture teaches us that sinful behavior is produced by a sinful heart. All of our sinful words, all of our sinful actions, attitudes are the result of something sinful going on in our hearts. And one of the reasons why some of us never change, is we only deal with the surface issue. And we need to learn to address the root issue. In other words, forget about the apples on the tree and why they're rotten. Get down to the root. What's, what's down underneath the surface there? Again, dealing with, not to, don't just deal with the symptoms, deal with the causes. It's like weeding a garden. I think um, um, Christina Hinojosa said it so well a couple weeks ago, that, that sometimes we're just so busy, especially busy moms, right? Um, you don't have time to really get to the root of some of these things, and you just you, deal, you see a sin, a symptomatic issue in your life, and you just kind of go, and it's a weed, and you just kind of break it off at the surface, so you don't see it there for a little while, but what's going to happen? Because you didn't dig out the root, it's going to just grow back. Another day, another season, it's going to come back, and you're going to have to keep dealing with it. So for example, guys, or maybe moms, Let's pick on moms. It's mom's day, okay? Or should I pick on the guys? Maybe pick on the guys, okay. Um, hey, if you're an angry dad, your kids irritate you, they frustrate you, you find yourself disciplining them in anger, and then you get convicted and guilty. You're like, oh man, I did it again. I yelled at the kids, and I, I'm so sorry, guys. Will you forgive me? And, and you go back, and you, you make it right with the Lord and them, and, and, but then the next night, you're doing it the same thing, and just, just like this pattern in your life. You're like, what is the deal? Can't seem to, to break this habit. Well, have you asked yourself the question, why are you getting angry? What do you want? What do you expect? What do you think you deserve? Maybe you are bitter because of the way your kids complicate your life. 
and commandeer your time, that there's this underlying bitterness in your heart. And so whenever there's an altercation, man, and you have to throw down the newspaper or your iPad or turn the TV off to go deal with it, right? It's a huge inconvenience for you. So those are, think about what's motivating that anger. That's an example. Number eight, break old habits and build new habits. Break old habits and build new habits. Ephesians chapter four, good example here of this. Verse 22, in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So the, the, the illustration of sanctification here, Paul uses, is taking off an old, dirty, soiled outfit and putting on a new outfit, clean, fresh, in its place. And really, you can boil down the sanctification process to breaking old sinful habits and making new godly habits. And habits are a good thing. Habits are a gift from the Lord. We need to use them to our advantage. The reason why we're so good at certain things is because we've done it so many times. It's become a habit, good habits and bad habits alike. So if you trained yourself to sin, you can train yourself not to sin. You're not an old dog, right? Old dogs can't learn new tricks or you can't teach old dogs new tricks. Well, thankfully, you're not a dog. You're a soul, right? With the spirit of God in you. And so if you trained yourself to sin, you can train yourself not to sin with the help of the Holy Spirit. And again, how did you get good at that particular sin? You did it over and over and over again. How are you gonna get good at not doing it? By saying no over and over and over again. It just takes practice. And that passage gives some examples that instead of being a liar, you need to be a truth teller. Instead of being angry, you need to resolve conflict. Instead of being a thief, you need to be a giver. Instead of tearing everybody down with your words, you need to learn to build them up. Instead of um, being bitter, that bitterness needs to be replaced with forgiveness. So it's a good, good examples there of what it looks like to break old habits and, and build new habits. Number nine, change your thinking. Change your thinking. Really, the battle against sin is won or lost where? Right here, in our minds. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says that we're supposed to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, praiseworthy, let your mind what? Dwell on these things. Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above. So if you want to change your behavior, it starts with changing your mind, changing your thinking. Right thinking leads to right living. And again, Philippians 4 is a good example. Be anxious for nothing. Say you have a tendency to get anxious and you continue to sin because you get worried all the time. You're all constantly worrying about everything. Well, what does it say? You, 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 you need to take control of those worrisome thoughts, turn them into prayers, right? Be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So you turn those worrisome thoughts into prayers to God. And then when you leave the presence of God, you leave it there with him and let your mind dwell on what is right and true and pure instead of taking it with you and continuing to worry about it, right? So there's just helpful truth there about changing the way you think about sin. Number 10, stay broken and humble. Stay broken and humble. Psalm 51, 17. Um, this was David's prayer of confession that he knew that God didn't want sacrifice, but uh, he said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, if any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. Galatians 6, 1, if you see a brother overtaken in a fall, you are a spirit to restore such, such a one in the spirit of gentleness, watching yourself lest you too be tempted. 
James 4, 6, God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. All those verses are just a reminder of how sinful we are. And that there is no sin that we're not capable of committing. Don't ever, ever think when you hear about somebody else's sin, how could they have done that? I don't understand. How could they have done that? I would never do that. Watch your mouth. (laughs) That's not being humble and contrite and broken. Watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. You need to be like the Puritan who likened himself to a powder keg and so he wouldn't get around any sparks because he just knew my, my flesh is a powder keg. And so we need to know ourselves and what we can and cannot handle and avoid those people and those places that cause us to sin. Stay broken, stay humble. Don't ever think you've got this. 11, make yourself accountable. Make yourself accountable. Ecclesiastes chapter four, uh, verse nine. Love this passage. Um, Be easily skimmed over as you're going through the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Woe is you if you don't have a close friend, discipler, mentor, who can be there when you fall to lift you up. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but to continue to meet together And the the context here is the need for encouragement. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Again, Paul, or or I always say Paul, but the writer of Hebrews um, said it this way. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called a day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need to encourage one another. We need to be Uh, made accountable to one another. God never intended us to live the Christian life in isolation. We need the help of others to mortify sin. It's all part of the one another's, to confess sin to one another, to, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to admonish one another, to pray for one another. And I would say this, for some of you, the very first step in overcoming a particular sin in your life, that hard to kill habit that you're even thinking about now, The first step is to tell someone that you struggle with that. And I know that sounds scary, but as long as that sin remains private, it has power over you. But as soon as you admit it to someone else and you not just confess it to God, you've been confessing it to God for years, right? But you're still giving into it. How about confess to God and then confide in another brother or sister in Christ? And then lastly, number 12, stay focused on Christ and the cross. Stay focused on Christ and the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.14, that he died that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. Titus chapter 2 talks about how the grace of God has been revealed uh, through Christ. Um, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I love Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. He talks about laying aside encumbrances and the sin that so easily entangles us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So the whole context is striving against sin, fighting with sin, laying aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And what are we to do? We are to fix our eyes on Jesus and consider him. And considering how our sin killed Jesus, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count by loss and poor contempt on all my pride. In other words, when we look at the cross and, and what Christ had to endure for my sin, for this sin that I'm thinking about committing right now, right? It, it has a power to conquer sin. And not just looking back at the cross, but looking ahead at the return of Christ. The day will be made like him. And 1 John 3 says that those who have that hope purify themselves even now. And the point is, as long as we are on this earth, we will be assaulted by sin and temptation. And until we get to heaven, we must wander through a world full of traps and, and snares. And Satan is going to just keep thumping on us spreading snares to entangle us. And so we should always be crying, come Lord Jesus. I can't wait for you to come back so I don't have to keep sinning. We've been reading the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle and our Ironman on Friday mornings and uh, Ralph spends a lot of focusing on our responsibility in our sanctification, the role that discipline plays and hard work and effort, uh, striving, struggling, and fighting against sin to be holy. But I love how he balances out his many exhortations by reminding his readers of our utter dependence on Christ. And this is what he said. This is the grand secret of progressive sanctification. You looking for a secret this morning? For your sanctification, how you can stop sinning so much? Sinning less and less, that sanctification? He says, this is a secret. Ever looking unto Jesus. The Christian soldier sees by faith an unseen Savior who loved him, gave himself for him, paid his debts for him, bore his sins, carried his transgressions, rose again for him, and appears in heaven for him as his advocate at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus and clings to him, seeing this Savior and trusting in him. He willingly does battle against the foes of his soul. He sees his own many sins, his weak heart, a tempting world, a busy devil, and if he looked only at them, he might well despair, but he sees also a mighty Savior, an interceding Savior, a sympathizing Savior, his blood, his righteousness, his everlasting priesthood, and he believes that all this is his own. He sees Jesus and casts his whole weight on him. Seeing him, he cheerfully fights on with a full confidence that he will prove more than a conqueror through him that loved him. And so, beloved, that's the most important thing. If you don't get anything out of this morning's message, that's it. Stay focused on Jesus and the cross. I read a helpful little book this week that I would encourage you guys to get a copy of and read through it. It won't take you that long. It's called Killing Sin Habits, Conquering Sin with Radical Faith. This is by Stuart Scott and his wife, Zandra. For those of you that went to the women's conference, this is uh, Zandra's husband, and they co-authored this book. Really, really helpful little book. I'm sure we have some in the Resource Center. Encourage you to get it. For those uh, bolder saints in here, I would challenge you to get a copy of John Owen's Sin and Temptation and work your way through that. Nothing better has ever been written on the doctrine of mortification than what John Owen wrote uh, in that Sin and temptation. Well, let me just close with a quote by John Owen. He said this, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. He asked the question, do you mortify? 
Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit so we don't have to try to conquer sin by our own willpower because, Lord, we know how that goes and we typically fail when we rely on our own willpower to stop sinning. Father, we ask you to forgive us for forsaking you, the fountain of living waters, whenever we seek pleasure or refuge in other things besides you. I pray that you would grant us the faith to believe that all of the promises that you offer us through obeying your word is way better than anything Satan promises us through sinning. Lord, would you grant us grace and mercy as we seek to mortify and put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, if you have a a need this morning, maybe you have a question, uh, or maybe you just could use some counsel, some prayer. Uh, We've got a couple of our elders available. You come and visit with them after we dismiss. Again, if you're visiting with us, uh, please stop by our welcome uh, center on the way out. Love to meet you personally over there. Drop off that welcome card. And uh, you guys have a great time honoring mom today. You're dismissed.